0: Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Saturday, April 28th, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers series. First, you will hear from Alan Luxemburg, president of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, who will introduce lecturer John H. Maurer. And now, enjoy the podcast.
1: Well, I'd like to also welcome you on behalf of FPRI and to thank uh, the New York Historical Society for hosting today's event. Uh, For those of you who may not be familiar with FPRI, let me just say very quickly, it was founded on the premise in 1955 that a nation should think before it acts. It was good advice then. It's still good advice today. Uh, as Dale said, our mission is to bring the insights of scholarship to bear on the foreign policy challenges facing the United States. And we do this through looking at contemporary international affairs through the lens of history, geography, and culture. As Winston Churchill said, the farther back you look, the farther forward you could see. One of the best things uh, we do at FPRI is to recruit young scholars and prepare them for a career in public service and academia. And one of the greatest examples of that is our speaker today, John Maurer, uh, who was with us uh, as a predoctoral fellow in the 1970s, rose to become a senior fellow and editor of our journal Orbis, and then has spent the last 30 years at the U.S. Naval War College, where for eight of those years he was chairman of the Strategy Department and is now the Alfred Thayer Mahan Professor of Sea Power and Grand Strategy. He's written a number of books on military and diplomatic history, served on the Secretary of the Navy's Advisory Committee, and I think this is his ninth or tenth time back here at the New York Historical Society, and there's a good reason for that. Uh, we have asked him today to speak on the legacy of uh, World War I as we commemorate the centennial of the end of that war. So please welcome John Maurer.
2: It is always great to be back here in New York. I enjoy so much coming to the New York Historical Society on Saturday mornings. You're always such a welcoming audience. And I want to thank Dale and Alan and their team for putting on these programs. As Alan said, it is so important that we look back to history to find guidance for today. Uh, As he said, a nation should think before it acts. Well, it's important for our leaders to think, to deliberate, to argue, because they're not always going to agree on things. But at the end, we hope, after deliberating, that they come up with the best courses of action for guiding the peoples for which they are responsible. Now, this year marks the 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War. And so what I'm going to do is speak about events of a hundred years ago. In particular, what I want to do is to look at leadership, to look at the high politics and strategy, the decisions, the actions of the top political leaders and the top military leaders. It's important to look at how they came to their decisions. It's also important to look at the way countries cooperated, or did not cooperate, to achieve their common goals. Now, to organize my lecture this morning, I have four seasons. I'm going to look at four seasons over the course of 1918. And we're going to start with the spring, or the winter. Sorry. (laughs) Let's start at wintertime. Okay, we'll go around I was jumping ahead in my own talk. Winter. Okay. What I want to do is give you some background on the events of 1918. The war had been going on since 1914. And in 1916, there had been horrific battles fought on the Western Front. The Battle of Verdun that began in February 1916. The Battle of the Somme that began on July 1st, 1916. On that first day of the Battle of the Somme, 60,000 soldiers from Britain and the British Empire became casualties in a single day. 19,000 were killed in a single day. This gives you some idea of the horrific fighting that was taking place on the Western Front. And in 1917, uh, the French began a big offensive on the Western Front in the hope of trying to break through and end the war. And this is what we think of when we think of the Western Front, don't we? That lunar landscape of soldiers going back and forth, fighting over yards of territory, not making much gain. Look at this horrific photograph of a French soldier being killed as he's charging forward against the Germans. Again, some other remarkable photographs that we see the fighting that took place. Here is soldiers very close to each other, German soldiers in the front, French soldiers coming forward. Again, these battles resulted in tens of thousands of fatalities. Well, in 1917, the big French offensive on the Western Front failed. There were horrible casualties that the French suffered. And as a consequence of that, the French army began to mutiny. The soldiers that had enough, in a grassroots of way, they decided not to obey their officers. When their officers said, charge, they were, no. We won't go forward. We've had enough. Now, the soldiers were willing to stand on the defense, to defend their country, their homeland, against German attacks. But they had had enough of going over the top. Well, to restore order in the French army, uh, Philippe Pétain, one of the generals of the First World War, one of the great heroes of the First World War, took over command of the French army. He understood the French soldiers. He understood how tired they were. He understood that it now was important to conserve lives, how important it was to try to maintain the resistance that France could have against the Germans, but at the same time understand that it could not come at the horrific loss of life that had occurred in previous battles. He had to conserve life to preserve the morale of the French army. Pétain is seen as one of the great leaders of the First World War. In the Second World War, however, he would become a collaborator with Nazi Germany, and his reputation would be tarnished by the way he betrayed France in the Second World War. Already in this war, you can see in Pétain some of the things that were going to lead him to become, uh, betray France in the Second War. An unwillingness to cooperate with Britain. Uh, He's forced to cooperate. More on that in a moment. But also in France, you have enter the tiger. Not just a change in the military leadership, but also a change in the political leadership as Georges Clemenceau became prime minister at the end of 1917. This is a remarkable political figure. Uh, he was in his mid-70s at this time when he took over as prime minister of France. France is war-weary. Some of the political elite are saying, can we negotiate an end of the war? Even though the Germans are in France... Is there a way of ending this war through peace talks? In other words, France is facing defeat. Its army is broken. The ability to continue to resist is limited. Should France make a deal, the best deal it can get with the Germans? Clemenceau, the Tiger, no. He's resolved to keep fighting. He's passionate about that France must continue this war, that France needs to make a total effort to defeat Germany, to push the Germans out from French territory. And again, it must be remembered that the German armies are only about 90 miles from Paris at this time. Clemenceau is fluent in English. He taught French uh, in American schools in the late 1860s. He was married to an American woman. This is one factor that I think is important in his ability to collaborate with the British and the Americans in that he speaks a common tongue with us, English. Again, at this important time, France is getting renewed uh, political leaders who are committed to continuing the war. Same thing has happened in Britain. A new prime minister emerged in Britain at the end of 1916. David Lloyd George... He, too, is a remarkably colourful figure. Uh, uh, Today, he isn't as well-remembered as some of the other great British leaders of the Second World War, like Winston Churchill. But Lloyd George, like Clemenceau, is a fiery political leader. He comes from the wrong side of the tracks. He's Welsh, not English. He also is a small-town lawyer who has made his uh, reputation by defending tenants against big landlords. He's seen as a radical, a radical. But he's a passionate person, committed, committed to victory, victory in this war. Just as France is producing in Clemenceau, a leader who is determined to keep the war going, so Britain has produced in David Lloyd George, another remarkable leader. Now, at the beginning of the war, Lloyd George gave a speech that is, I think, really remarkable. And here are some of the key elements of it. At a time when many people were saying that this war would be short, it would be over in six months or a year, Lloyd George was speaking truth to power. And in a democracy, power is the people. He's telling the British people that this isn't going to be an easy war. It's going to be tough. It's going to be a terrible war. But in the end, He predicts final victory over Germany, as he called it, a march through terror to triumph. Again, what wonderful language here, through terror to triumph. And in this speech as well, he lays out the attributes that Britain will need to show to be able to win this war against Germany. The qualities that he's saying, what are those qualities? Prudence in counsel, daring in action, tenacity in purpose, courage in defeat. Moderation in victory, in all things, faith. What wonderful language here. Powerful speech. When I look at these words, I think of some of the great speeches, orations, of Winston Churchill during the Second World War. Churchill, by the way, was deeply influenced by Clemenceau and Lloyd George. Churchill would go to France. He would hear Clemenceau deliver great speeches before the French Parliament. He was a great admirer of Clemenceau. He was also a great admirer of David Lloyd George. So some of the rhetoric, some of the language that Churchill is going to use in the Second World War in the fight against Nazi Germany, you can hear some of that language here in the leaders of France and Britain during the First World War. To understand the history of the Second World War, it's so important to study the First World War because the First World War shapes the views of the leaders of the Second World War. Well, one of the most famous speeches Lloyd George gave was his knockout blow. Again, this war has to be fought to a knockout. There can be no peace negotiations with Germany. Germany has to be defeated. Germany has to know it's defeated. But once Germany is defeated, moderation should apply. Germany should be welcomed back into the family of nations. Well, who's going to deliver that knockout blow? Well, it's going to be the British Army. And here's a famous painting by John Singer Sargent of the British generals. This is in the National Portrait Gallery in London off Trafalgar Square. And here are the generals who were in charge of the British Army during the First World War. They're the ones that are building up British military power, sending it to the Western Front in France to undertake the offensives that they believe are necessary to defeat Germany. To defeat Germany, the British generals argue, you have to defeat the German army. To defeat the German army means that the British army must go on the offensive over the top, taking the fight to the Germans. And then, when the German army is defeated, German will to fight will be broken, and the war will come to an end. The commander of the British forces in France on the Western Front is Sir Douglas Haig. He today, his reputation is often seen as something of a butcher, that he's callous of human life, that he was so committed, dedicated to defeating the German army by undertaking offensive action that he callously, callously sacrificed the lives of the men under his command. Lloyd George had grave doubts about the leadership of Haig. He, Lloyd George, saw the heavy losses at the Battle of the Somme the year before. He didn't want to undertake more offensives. He wanted to conserve British manpower and resources. But Haig was insistent. But the British Army had to attack in 1917. And so in the fall of 1917, the British Army goes over to the offensive, in the Battle of Passchendaele, or Third Yeap, which is up there on the Western Front, Belgium and France. Huge offensive takes place. Well, British soldiers going over the top with predictable results, heavy losses of life but also a heavy raining season in the fall of 1917, the result is the battlefield becomes one big mud field. This is terrible conditions for the soldiers. Their trenches are flooded. Their dugouts are flooded. Where do you go? Well, you have to go up. But if you go up, you expose yourself to fire, to, to the enemy bullets and artillery. And here you can see the horrible mud fields of Flanders. Well, in this battle that is waged over the fall of 1917. The British Empire, soldiers from England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, also Australia, Canada, New Zealand, they suffer 85,000 killed in action. Meanwhile, about 60,000 Germans are killed in this battle. Lloyd George is furious with this result. This battle has demonstrated to him that Haig has to go away. He wants to fire Haig. He's come to the conclusion that the British Army cannot take another battle like this or its morale will be broken just as the French Army's morale was broken. Well, Lloyd George at the time, though, had to spit defiance. But behind the scenes, he had grave doubts about the wisdom of the strategy of his generals. After the war, in his war memoirs, Lloyd George wrote about the generals. And if you go to his war memoirs and you look at the index, at the index of his work, this is what you'll see. There's the generals. Military mind. Narrowness of. <laughs> Stubbornness of. On page 3055. Does not seem to understand arithmetic. <laughs> Impossibility of trusting. Trusting. Regards thinking as a form of mutiny. You know, we're supposed to think before we act. Well, again, here Lloyd George is taking his revenge on the generals for forcing him to surge forward in these battles that he thought were counterproductive. Yes, the German army might might be being destroyed in these battles, but at the same time, the British army is being destroyed. In this great war, the people of Britain would suffer over 700,000 dead. Most of those fatalities on the Western Front in France. By the way, in the Second World War, Britain has less than half the fatalities that they had in the First World War. Even though the Second World War was longer in duration and the British homeland was bombed and you had civilian fatalities as well as battlefield fatalities... How do you explain that? Well, it is in the First World War, the British army is tackling head-to-head the German army in battle. Whereas in the Second World War, it's going to be the Soviet Red Army that does that heavy fighting against the German army. Again, Lloyd George gets his revenge on the generals. But it's important to note that by writing about the generals in this way, during the period between the two world wars, Lloyd George fed in to the common view that was developing between the wars, that generals were incompetent, callous of life, and we must never fight a war like this again. That fed into the appeasement of Hitler's Germany. It weakened the resolve of the British people. Again, Lloyd George's legacy, while the great victor of the First World War, after the First World War, he contributed to a climate of appeasement against Hitler's Germany. Well, why not make peace at this time? Instead of doing more fighting, why not bring about a peace settlement in the winter of 1917-18? Again, in Britain and in France, there are people who are arguing this among the elite. One is... A important conservative British politician by the name of Lord Lansdowne. He had been Britain's foreign secretary at the turn of the 20th century, their equivalent of secretary of state. He had lost a son in the First World War, killed. And he wrote a memo, which he then turned into uh, an article for the newspapers. He wanted to publish it in the Times of London. The Times said, no, it's too defeatist. The Daily Telegraph then published it toward the end of 1917. And in this letter, again, coming from an important political figure, a member of the establishment, he said, we're killing off the people of our islands. For what purpose? Will the sacrifice have its reward? And again, this will be long-term loss. It's not just a loss now. It will have a long-term societal effect, economic effect on Britain. Instead, isn't there a way of negotiating an end to the war? Well, one of the responses to this was by a former president of the United States, nonetheless, Theodore Roosevelt, who in response to Lansdowne's published letter tweeted out, (laughs) such a peace would leave the liberty-loving nations, in other words, the democracies of the world, the United States, Britain, and France, at the mercy of who? A triumphant, militaristic Germany. Germany hasn't been defeated. Its armies are on French and Belgian soil, deep in Russia. They're fighting in the Middle East and in the Balkans. The Germans' armies have been victorious up to this point. They've carried the war onto the enemy territory. A peace settlement at this time will register, in effect, a German victory because the Germans so far have made the territorial gains in Europe. They have to be defeated on the field of battle and pushed back. And that's what Theodore Roosevelt is arguing, and other critics of Lord Lansdowne, and those who criticized the idea of coming to a peace settlement in 1917-18. That the Allied and associated powers would not be able to claim victory. It will register a German victory in this war. Well, President Woodrow Wilson had to run for re-election in 1916. And as you can see, peace in America. He ran on a campaign platform that he had kept the U.S. out of that horrific war in Europe. However, after he was elected, Wilson had made it clear to the Germans that there was a red line, today what we call a red line that if the Germans were too aggressive in their submarine warfare, that that would result in the US going into war. Well, in early 1917, the Germans did exactly what Wilson had feared. And what he had said was a red line that should not be crossed. They crossed it. They undertook a very aggressive campaign of submarine warfare against shipping, including American shipping, sending it to the bottom. The result was that Wilson, in April of 1917, went to Congress and asked for a declaration of war. His speech, here it is, being published on the front page of the New York Times a day later. Some of the language from it, this is one of the most famous. The world must be made safe for democracy, he says there. Again, peace, peace to be planted on the world must be tested on what? The foundations of political liberty... We listen to this language and we say, yes, we can understand this, that for the United States to remain a democratic country, to have free institutions, that around us, the world, the world has to be a more benign international environment. Can the United States survive as a democracy with strong self-governing institutions, with political liberties and civil rights? If the world around us is engaged in constant warfare, and our society, our country is constantly threatened. What Wilson is saying is no, that we have to use American power to change around the international environment so that democracy at home will be secured by having a more peaceful world abroad. Now, this is a revolutionary statement, and I don't think it's recognized just how revolutionary it was, because going back to the founding of our republic, to George Washington's farewell address when he stepped down as president, was avoid entangling alliances, avoid the European rivalries and the wars of the European states. Those wars, if you get involved in it, Washington argued, the result will be that the United States will become more militarized and that our democratic institutions will be eroded. Well, who's right? Well, obviously there has to be a balance, right, between these two points of view. This debate, if you will, between Washington and between Wilson is one that we still face today. It's important to recognize how far do we go How far do we have to go overseas to protect us at home? How far do we have to go in curbing self-government civil liberties to protect ourselves in a dangerous world? These are fundamentally important questions that need to be addressed by us in a free society. Well, for Wilson, in January of 1918, during the winter of 1917-18, he enunciated the 14 points. These are the specific war aims for which the United States uh, was engaged in fighting in this war. I am now going to go forward uh, by giving you each point in term, 14 points. Point one. Just kidding. (laughs) By by the way, Clemenceau said... Almighty God had only 10 commandments and Wilson has 14. <laughs> well, I'm going to highlight uh, some of the points in it. In the 14 points, Wilson lays out that we need to live in a globalized world. There has to be reduction of of, um, of um, tariffs, barriers to trade, because a world that's knit together economically is a world that he believes will be more peaceful. He also wants to create a league of democratic states to enforce the peace. What? It later becomes known as the League of Nations. Uh, but it, embedded in the 14 points are several points that relate to Germany and war aims with regard to Germany. At this time, German armies are deep in Russian territory. He says that that territory has to be evacuated. German armies are also deep in Belgium. German armies have to retreat from Belgium as part of a peace settlement and not only evacuated, but restored. That means that Germany is under an obligation toward Belgium to repair the damage that has been done by the German forces in Belgium. French territory has to be evacuated uh, and restored. Again, that can be seen as an indemnity or reparations on the part of Germany. By the way, not just the boundaries of 1914, But President Wilson says that Germany has to give up Alsace-Lorraine, the territory that had been taken from France in 1871 at the end of the Franco-Prussian War. In other words, Germany has to go back to the borders before 1871 between France and Germany. And also, an independent Polish state needs to be created with access to the sea. This means taking territory from the German Empire populated by Polish-speaking people, to give them their own country. So in other words, Germany has to not only evacuate territory that it has conquered during the war, but it has to give up German territory. The boundaries of 1914 Germany are going to be shrunk by this. Well, these aims are unacceptable to the German military leaders and to the German political elite at this time. These are non-negotiable at this time so Wilson's 14 points are a challenge to Germany again he's very close to Theodore Roosevelt's views that Germany must be defeated before there can be a lasting peace established well William Sims who was commander of American naval forces in Europe he was in Europe when the US declared war he was in London and one of the things he did was to talk to British elites And he wrote to his wife, and here in the Library of Congress, you can see his letter, to uh, one of his letters to his wife. He writes about a dinner party he goes to in which he meets a young Winston Churchill who is just about ready to become Minister of Munitions in the British government. And what Winston Churchill says to Admiral Sims is, the Allies, Britain and France, would have been defeated if America had not come in. Again, the U.S. coming into the war is going to prove to be the decisive weight that tilts the balance against imperial Germany. Well, for Winston Churchill, in a speech that he gives in September 1917, and there he is giving a speech. And next to him is his uh, wife, Clementine Churchill. I I always remark about that hat. (laughs) I I just find that a remarkable hat. Well, anyway, Churchill says in this speech, what he said to Sims privately, he's also saying in public. He says there's only two ways left of winning this war, and they both begin with A. And what is that first A word? Airplanes. And the other is America. Again, this is Churchill's strategy in the Second World War as well as his views in 1917, that the U.S. is critical to winning the war in Europe. And also technology and airplanes at this time are the cutting-edge technology are going to be decisive as well. Well, in the United States, and as you know, right outside, uh, this wonderful painting showing that once the U.S. is involved in the war, the whole war preparedness movement, uh, that the United States is patriotically caught up in this war. Um, Conscription is put in place. An American army of over 4 million Soldiers are conscripted, recruited, over 2 million of which would go to France eventually. Now, not everybody in the United States agreed with this entry into the war and with conscription. One of the persons opposed to conscription was Eugene Debs, presidential candidate for the Socialist Party in the United States. And in 1918 in Canton, Ohio, Eugene Debs gave a speech in which he opposed conscription And said that American young men should not let themselves be conscripted into the army. That this is a fundamental, a fundamental slap at civil liberties, that you can take people and force them to be in the US Armed Forces. Well, under the sedition laws put in place at this time, Eugene Debs was arrested and convicted and sent to a federal penitentiary in Georgia. And there you can see him, convict number 9653. Now, when the war was over, it was recommended to President Wilson that he commute, that he pardon, that he pardon Eugene Debs's sentence. After all, the war is over. Let's let bygones be bygones. He's a major political figure in the United States. He's running for office. Well, this is... Wilson's response, he refused to pardon Eugene Debs. Again, while he, while Americans are fighting in France, what did Debs do? Look at this language, sniping, attacking, denouncing them, hitting them. Well, this man was a traitor, Wilson says, and he will never be pardoned by Wilson. Wow. Wow. He was eventually pardoned, by the way, by Wilson's successor, the Republican Warren G. Harding. Now, in the 1920 presidential election in which Harding won, Eugene Debs, even though he was in prison, still ran for political office. <laughs> Elect for president convict number 9653. Okay, uh, he, uh, he got over a million votes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I could make some crack about politicians and criminals, but I won't. (laughs) Now, as America is coming into the war, it's important to note that Russia is dropping out of the war. Again, there had been heavy fighting, not just in France, where I'm focusing my attention, but also in the Balkans, on the Italian front, throughout the Middle East, from the Arabian Gulf all the way to the Dardanelles, from Egypt up to the Caucasus, but also on the Russian front. Russia was an ally of Britain and of France. Russia had taken very heavy losses during the war, and the Russian army morale breaks in 1916 and 1917 from the heavy losses. Russian soldiers fleeing the field in the advancing German armies and surrendering rather than fight. In early 1917, the Tsarist regime of Nicholas II is overthrown in a revolution. A provisional government, a republic, is put in its place. In turn, at the end of 1917, that Republican government in Russia is overturned by, yes, Lenin and the Bolsheviks. Lenin, his battle cry at this time is peace and bread. He wants to embrace a peace settlement. That means dealing with the German military. Well, the result is the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, March 1918. This is something that, again, isn't remembered But Lenin's Bolshevik regime makes peace with imperial Germany to end the war. Because Lenin believes that the only way that the Bolsheviks can survive in Russia, that they can impose their will on the Russian people, is if they don't have to fight Germany. And so he makes this peace that registers major German gains in the East. All of the Ukraine, the Baltic states, Poland, all become satellite states of imperial Germany. Well, it's remembered today in Russia. Four years ago, President Putin made a, uh, in, a, in a speech to the Russian upper house of the parliament, said, our country, Russia, was defeated by the Germans, the losing side. Russia lost to the losers in the First World War. And why did that happen? In a very controversial statement, Putin said, it was because of the betrayal of Lenin's government that Lenin somehow betrayed the Russian people by making this peace, this peace with Germany. Again, this history of 100 years ago carries down to our own time. And to an ardent extremist Russian nationalist like Putin, he remembers this humiliation from 100 years ago. Spring. Well, the winter of discontent is over. Russia has been defeated. What is the Kaiser going to do? What should he do? What should German strategy be? They've defeated Russia. What's the next move, strategic move in this war? Well, he turns to his generals, HL. HL stands for Hindenburg and Ludendorff. And here is Field Marshal Hindenburg. Uh, He was a veteran of the earlier wars ...of German unification in 1866 and 1870-71. He has become a great hero during the First World War... ...because he has won victories on the Eastern Front against the Russians. He is seen as the architect of the defeat of Russia in the First World War. He is seen as the general that protected the German people and homeland... ...from a Russian invasion. He is seen as this great leader... He's very popular in Germany. that's his full name. (laughs) We're going to have a quiz later, so you are to uh, remember this. I'm going to quiz you all on this. Okay. Well, Hindenburg, because he is seen as the protector, the savior of the German homeland, is very popular within Germany at this time. Again, one of the legacies of the First World War, his popularity lasts into the post-war world, into the Weimar Republic, He, as president of Germany in 1933, is the one who is going to appoint Hitler as chancellor on January 30th, 1933. Again, the great hero of the First World War is going to contribute to the great horror and catastrophe of the Second World War by reaching out and appointing Hitler as the chancellor, the prime minister. Of Germany. Well, supporting Hindenburg was his top planner, Erich Ludendorff. Uh, You'll notice there's no von there. Ludendorff is very much a middle-class technocrat. He's there because the German army has promoted him on merit. He's a fanatical person. He's an ardent German nationalist. After the First World War, he too would initially embrace Hitler. He's a proto-Nazi. He's an extremist. He's committed to victory in this war for Germany, the German nation over the other peoples of Europe. Well, this is the team, HL, Hindenburg and Ludendorff. Ludendorff is the brains, the highly strung planner. Hindenburg is the more stolid, stable one, emotionally strong. Uh, When you look at these two, you can see the one deferring to the other. In fact, at the time, it was said that Hindenburg, his real name was Field Marshal Vassakstu. What do you say? <laughs> Ask Hindenburg a question, he Ludendorff, what do you say? <laughs> What's your opinion on this? Your opinion is my opinion. Well, uh, these two advised the Kaiser to undertake a big offensive on the Western front, to attack in a big bid for victory. Uh, Ludendorff says the British army must be destroyed, must be beaten in the field by launching an offensive at the center of the line where the French and British armies come together to break through there and then have follow-up offensives to drive the British army off of its trench lines back to the sea. Again, this looks like 1940 in Dunkirk where the Germans break through in the center of the line and British and French armies have to retreat to the coast and be evacuated. Well, this is what Ludendorff is recommending in 1918. The big battle to beat the British Army in France, Flanders, drive them into the sea. He needs to do this before the Americans arrive in force. And so you have the Kaiser's Battle, it's called, of March 21st, 1918. The big offensive begins. German soldiers, many of which are released from the Eastern Front because they're at peace with Russia. Artillery brought to the Western Front. The Germans temporarily have superiority in numbers over the British and French armies. And so they go on the offensive over the top. And they score initially breakthroughs on the British Front. The British Army is forced into retreat in disarray. It looks like the Front is going to break that the British will be defeated. Everything's going according to Ludendorff's plan. Haig, in command, pleads for help to the French, to Pétain. Move up French reserves to help us hold the line against this German offensive. What must not happen is that the British army and the French army become separated and that the Germans drive a wedge between the British and the French armies. Pétain's response is no. No. I must keep my reserves to protect Paris. The Germans are eventually going to fight their way to Paris, and the British are on their own in this. <laughs> Meanwhile, Haig wants support from the Americans. American forces are starting to deploy into France. And this is General Pershing, the commander of the American Expeditionary Force. What the British and the French want is American soldiers come over in small units that they then immediately be sent as replacements into British and French divisions. Pershing says, no, US soldiers should fight together as big units, as divisions, and as a whole army. It should not be broken up to provide replacements for British and French soldiers. He's adamant that he will not cooperate with the British and the French. So what you have here is divergent national interests leading on the battlefield to potential military catastrophe. Now, to coordinate the Allied efforts on the Western Front, a new general I must introduce to you, Marshal Ferdinand Foch. Foch is one of the most charismatic leaders of the First World War. He spoke in big, sweeping gestures. He had been a teacher at the French military academy. Uh, He's a big proponent of the offensive, that the war must be won by attacking. Well, he is seen as the natural leader to coordinate the efforts of the British, French, and American armies. And so when he is put in command, because the political leaders realize that there must be some coordination, they insist upon that there be a generalissimo, a commander-in-chief, to unify the military effort on the Western Front. Foch works out compromises Pétain is ordered to move reserves up to help the British, even though that might weaken the French front in front of Paris. Pershing compromises too. While he doesn't want to see American units, small units, fed into the British and French army, he is willing to take American divisions and push them into the front to help hold the line against the Germans. So all of a sudden, through compromise you see a more coherent defensive strategy plan being put into place here to guide the overall efforts of the American, of the British, and the French armies on the Western Front. Without this cooperation, Germany might have won on the Western Front in 1918, where Ludendorff persists in the offensive against the British Army up in Flanders. Uh, The British hold on, though, and they do it by taking everybody at home on leave, recruiting the youngest people that they can, sending them to the front to replace losses. This is a painting by Winston Churchill. It shows soldiers who are on leave in London going to the railway station, saying goodbye, heading off to the front. Everybody has to go to the front. It is seen as a crisis time. Everybody is needed to hold the line. Haig, general who is seen as a butcher. He is dogged and tenacious, though, and in an especial order to the army, in very famous words that are remembered to this day in Britain to fight it out to the end. Every position must be held, no retreat. And again, the famous line with our backs to the wall, each one of us must fight on to the end. Haig, for whatever his uh, qualities, uh, uh, the qualities that we criticize him for. As a defensive general in this battle, he's exactly the right general to have, Uh, who has the spine, who's determined to fight it out, and is able to inspire his troops to fight it out. Well, the British line holds. What should Ludendorff do next? Well, the French have weakened their front, uh, on the road to paris so why not attack there and then eventually go back to attacking the british but draw the french and the british away by attacking toward paris and so at the end of may the end of the spring of 1918 the german armies launch another big offensive on the western front they break through the french lines they are on the road to paris one more success For German arms in the spring of 1917. And here, American troops go into battle, the 2nd Division, a brigade of army units and a brigade of marines, famous Battle of Belleau Wood. The American troops, fighting with the French, helped to stem, stem the German offensive toward Paris. And this is celebrated in Marine Corps history down to our own time, 100 years later. The role that American soldiers, army and marines, played in stopping the German drive on Paris. Summer. Well, the British ambassador in this crisis, where everybody's needed, went into Woodrow Wilson and said, we need more than anything else American soldiers to come over to France in as large a number as possible. And to the British ambassador, Lord Redding, Wilson replied, I'll do my damnedest. Again, the British leaders, this reassurance that America is committed and will send its young men over to France to stem this German offensive. And it's amazing how many troops, how quickly they go over to France. By the end of the war, by Armistice Day, November 11th, 1918, there were over 2 million Americans in France. The American army in France is bigger than the French army. This is the commitment that America makes to winning the Great War. Going over there, the Yanks are coming. By the way, go to YouTube. Listen to Enrico Caruso singing over there. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. The Yanks are coming. And again, his voice captures that passion that the Germans have to be defeated, and America is going to play that role by going over there. I'd sing it for you, but I can't compete with Caruso. Well, American forces do go across the Atlantic, again a danger zone. German submarines, American destroyers, Navy, helps the Royal Navy to ensure the safe arrival of American forces in convoys across the Atlantic. The U.S. is also building large numbers of ships, along with Britain, to replace the losses that are lost to German submarines in the Atlantic. Again, on July 4th, 1918, that 95 ships, merchant ships, are launched in American yards. This is America's productive capacity, its industrial strength being brought to bear, not just American manpower, but also American industry and manufacturing. One person who is in Europe in the summer of 1918 is none other than Franklin D. Roosevelt. Isn't this a wonderful photograph of him? Here, He's over there as Assistant Secretary of the Navy. He was Woodrow Wilson's Assistant Secretary of the Navy. That's the number two civilian post in the Navy Department at this time. And he went to Europe to visit the battlefields, to do an inspection tour, and report back. And while in France, he went right up to the front lines. And you can see him there, muddy boots and all trench coat. And he said to a group, of, uh, um, uh, at a dinner in Britain, he said to his uh, British uh, allies, we are with you to the end. Again, America reassuring the British and French that the United States will play its role in defeating the common enemy. Well, the German offensives are stalled. And in July, General Field Marshal Foch decides it's time to counterattack that the time is now ripe, that the Germans are exhausted. They've suffered heavy losses in the offensive. Now it's time to counterpunch. And so the French launch an offensive in July 1918, in the summer. And they beat the Germans. The Germans are pushed back. They lose the territory that they had taken in their offensives. And then in August, the British attack. The British offensive is also offensive. Uh, also successful in breaking back the German lines. Uh, Tanks play a role in the British offensive against the Germans. American troops, the 1st Division, also on the offensive against the Germans. Uh, Ludendorff, faced by these counterattacks that are successful by the American, British, and French armies, says this is the black day of the German army. By August 10th, he knows that Germany is defeated. His offensive gambit of the spring of 1918 can't be continued. German losses on the attack were horrific. German morale at the front is starting to break. The German army is being defeated. Its own offensives have contributed to this breakdown of German morale, just as the French offensives had led to a breakdown of the French army's morale. Ludendorff, by the way, has what amounts to a collapse, a nervous breakdown, because he realizes that the war is now lost. Well, into the autumn. Well, Foch, recognizing that the tables are now turned, doesn't want to just take the offensive back to the front lines where the German offensive started but wants to continue the offensive, to push the Germans back toward Germany. And so he begins what he calls the greatest of all battles in the world. American, British, French armies attack all along the line, from the Channel all the way down uh, to Alsace-Lorraine. The United States now can form its own army on the right wing, under General Pershing. Enough American troops are there, trained up and ready to go. And the Allies are supported by great deal of manufacturing munitions this is a british munitions plant winston churchill at this time is the head of the british ministry of munitions in charge of producing the weapons of war for the army and as you can see the allied industrial plant in france and britain is producing the weapons that are needed the firepower that's needed to break the german army on the offensive the germans are facing an industrial powers stronger than they are And it's now being played out on the battlefield. In addition to that, tanks are being built for offensive purposes and aircraft. In the last year of the war, the British manufactured over 30,000 aircraft. Remember, the Kitty Hawk is just a few years before. This is the transformation that's taking place at this time as air power is going from first-man flight to where it is becoming an important uh, influence on the battlefield and that it has to be produced in large numbers, and large numbers of pilots need to be trained. Allies have air superiority by this point on the battlefield in France, and this contributes to the Allied victory. So when they go over the top, the Allied armies have tanks, air superiority. Churchill, writing to Lloyd George in September, says, these tanks have been a definite factor, definite factor. By the way, Churchill wanted to produce more tanks than what the army wanted. He was giving Haig more tanks than what Haig wanted. As Churchill said, that uh, if you went to Haig and said, do you want 50,000 men for the cavalry or 50,000 men for tanks? He'll say 50,000 men for the cavalry. Again, Churchill is highly critical of the generals, that they're not being progressive, that they're not transforming their forces, taking advantage of this new technology as much as they should. Well, the offensives are successful. The German army is being beaten in the field. Pershing says to the French and the British that the American people are proud to be fighting in this greatest battle in world history. Americans in French-manufactured tanks, using French and British artillery and ammunition, go on the offensive, and the Meuse are gone. This is an incredible battle. Large numbers of Americans are killed on the offensive uh, in the period from September down to November 1918. The U.S. Army has never taken so many casualties in such a short period of time as what happens in the Meuse are gone. But the German Army is being beaten. Here you see German prisoners of war being herded to POW camps by Canadians who are also fighting on the Western Front. Uh, Haig went to visit the Canadian Division, and he talked to the commander of the Canadian Division. And what the commander told him was, the Germans are surrendering without fighting. And the Canadian Highlanders, they don't like to take prisoners. (laughs) Again, this is the brutality of the Western Front, is that generally the numbers of prisoners were small, and often you had to kill them to protect yourself from counterattack. Well, the Canadian Highlanders don't like to take prisoners, but in this case, they can't help by taking, because there's so many of them, and the enemy's putting up no fight. Again, the German army's morale is breaking at this time under the weight of their own offensives and the losses they had, and now the Allied counterattack, firepower, superiority in tanks, and in aircraft. I highlight this because in the interwar period, one of the great myths propagated by the Nazis was that the German army had been stabbed in the back by the home front, by traitors. That the German army had never been defeated in the field. That is untrue. The German army had been defeated in the field in western France. The main theater of war. The German army's morale is cracking at this time. Well, the result of heavy losses, the privation of the blockade, leads to a revolution in Germany. And here you see the crowds proclaiming a new republic. An overthrow of the Kaiser's regime outside the Reichstag in Berlin. The Kaiser, well, he's out. He goes into exile in the Netherlands. You have negotiations for an armistice. As representatives of the German government, military and civilian, go to talk to the French and British leaders. And this depicts the railway train in the Compiègne Forest in 1918, in which the armistice terms, this is not the peace settlement, the armistice terms are agreed upon. Basically, the German army is disarmed. They have to turn over large numbers of artillery pieces. The German submarines have to be surrendered. The German surface fleet of battleships has to be surrendered. The German army also has to retreat out of France and Belgium back to Germany. There's also restrictions put on the number of machine guns that the Germans can have. In fact, the German leaders say, you're taking so many machine guns uh, away from us that we won't be able to shoot down the revolutionaries in Germany at home. Please leave us some machine guns to shoot our own people. Uh, To which the Allies say, okay, we, we don't want a revolution in Germany. We don't want the Bolsheviks coming to power in Germany like they have in Russia. But really harsh armistice terms that in effect disarms Germany its ability to carry on a conventional war. Allied armies move forward uh, from Belgium and France to bridgeheads across the Rhine so that if the Germans don't sign the peace settlement, the American, British, and French armies are in a position across the Rhine River barrier to continue their advance into Germany if they have to. Germany now has been so weakened militarily by these armistice terms that the Allies... Can now impose a peace settlement upon Germany. Well, making peace? I put a question mark there. Another John Singer Sargent painting that had been here last year, right, Dale? You know, right over here, typically at the Imperial War Museum, gassed. You see British soldiers here temporarily blinded, leaning out on the person in front of them, going back to aid stations. Uh, When you look at the painting, it's a a remarkable painting. There's so much detail. In the back, you see uh, British soldiers playing football, soccer, uh, in in this. Well, the horrific losses of the First World War are going to have their impact on the societies, economies, psyche, psychology of the peoples of Europe and the United States. The big three, Lloyd George, Clemenceau, and Wilson, Churchill called the masters of the world. What kind of peace settlement are they going to come up with? Well, on the 28th of June, 1919, the Germans signed the Treaty of Versailles in the Hall of Mirrors. Um, Here's a very famous painting of it. Right in front is the German representative signing. You can see Wilson Clemenceau, Lloyd George looking on. In Germany, this peace settlement is seen as a punitive one. It is essentially based, though, on, on Wilson's 14 points uh, in that Germany has to pay some reparations, which sticks in the craw of the German people because they're being, told, they're being told that the German army had never been beaten. The war had never come to German soil. So now they are having imposed upon them what they see as a punitive peace, that someday Germany will rise up again under a new leader. And overturn this settlement. Well, we know that some of the seeds of the Second World War are planted in this Treaty of Versailles. By the way, June 28th, that's five years to the day after the Archduke Franz Ferdinand had been assassinated in Sarajevo that becomes the trigger, the trigger for the First World War. Well, here's a cartoon of the time, and, and this cartoon is, is incredible uh, when you think of it. Look at this. Peace and future cannon fodder. And what you see is a baby, a child, the class of 1940, crying. There's a baby crying, and peace treaty is down there. And the tiger, Clemenceau, says, Curious, I seem to hear a child weeping. Well, 1940, as we know, is when France is defeated by Nazi Germany. How prophetic! is this cartoon from 1919 that somehow the peace settlement is not meant to last, that someday it is going to be overturned. And indeed, the baby, the child of 1919 is going to be caught up in an even more horrific war a generation later. Here's the peace settlement that Woodrow Wilson signed committing the United States To be more involved in the world, security guarantees to Britain and France to prevent a German war of revenge, that the United States will stand associated through a lead to enforce the peace to prevent another great war. Well, as we know, the American people weren't ready for that. As part of that debate, discussion, deliberation, thinking between Washington, meaning George Washington's farewell address and Wilson's new conception of America's role in the world. A discussion that we're still having to this day. The American people after the First World War was never again. We don't want to do that again. Who benefited from the war, Americans are told? Oh, only the merchants of death. Daddy war books. You know, they're the only people that benefited Americans didn't benefit overall by being involved. George Washington was right. Avoid those entangling alliances. Well, what are some of the lessons today? Well, uh, for the United States, it's important to remember that the United States, as the most powerful country in the world, cannot turn its back on the world. In that discussion between George Washington and Woodrow Wilson, we have to strike that right balance. We have to remain committed to our friends that are democracies. If we don't, if we don't stay committed to the other democracies of the world, we will most surely have another catastrophe like what happened in the Second World War where one democracy after another falls. First Czechoslovakia in '38, 1940 France. 1940. Britain almost fell if it had not been for Winston Churchill. The democracy is being picked off one by one by those regimes, authoritarian regimes, that want to remake the world in a different image than what we have grown accustomed to. So one of the great lessons of this war, the First World War, the Great World War, is to prevent another great war. And The best way to do that is by the world's democracies sticking together. If not, our enemies will seize that advantage and try to beat the other democracies of the world before we can get involved, just like the Germans tried to do, win quickly before the US gets involved. We have to prevent that. We have to make those that want to violently overturn the international status quo know that the U.S. is engaged, and hence they won't even try it in the first place. Thank you very much. Thank you. I, I have some questions that, uh, was, uh, that have been given to me, and... Um, Uh, The first one here is, what what really were German aims? Was Germany intending to conquer France, Britain, US? If not, what was the point of the war? This is a fundamental question. Uh, What were German aims? Well, uh, German aims uh, were to create a hegemony, a German leadership, hegemony in Europe, to subordinate the other countries, make them satellite states, including France. Uh, The Treaty of Brest-Litovsk is a real punitive settlement. The non-Russian people of the Russian Empire are stripped away from uh, Russia. And the purpose of that is to provide security of Germany against uh, Russia in the future. To have a whole series of buffer states to protect German homeland from Russia. In France, they were also going to impose, if they had won a punitive settlement on the French, limiting the French army, taking even more French territory. They wanted bases in France on the Channel and and in Belgium. They were going to incorporate the Netherlands into a big customs trade union. Uh, The Germans also had ambitions in the Middle East, stretching uh, from Berlin to Baghdad, as they would say. So Germany sees itself as being the dominant power in German military leaders and political elite, conservative political elites, see themselves as being the dominant power in Europe and in the Middle East. Now, what's important about that is that it doesn't oppose an immediate threat to the U.S. The U.S., protected by the two big oceans, Atlantic and Pacific, uh, are removed from the the European. And this is why we have something of a buffer of safety. And this is why George Washington was saying we shouldn't be involved... But in the modern age, with modern weaponry, that reach can extend across oceans. Oceans are not just barriers. Oceans are also highways. And so the United States, in some future period, might find itself fighting alone against a Europe dominated by the Hindenburgs and the Ludendorffs. So uh, for the United States, I think the stakes are high here. And again, Wilson had put this red line that Germany should not behave in such an aggressive way at sea. They crossed that red line, and so Wilson believed that it was important to go to war because that was an indication that the Germans at some point would threaten the U.S. And then you have the Zimmermann telegraph where the Germans are reaching out and saying that Uh, Germany should form an alliance with Japan and Mexico and undo the Mexican War of the 19th century and get territory back from Mexico. So all of these things were indicating to Wilson, to the American people, that the war in Europe won't stay confined to Europe, that it'll eventually come to the United States. But um, uh, uh, the question of German aims is a fundamentally important one in thinking through what the stakes are, whether the U.S. had to fight or not. Um, yeah, good question here. Did President Wilson violate the Second Amendment with his sedition laws? Uh, these laws were put in place in wartime, and, and today we, we find them obnoxious. Uh, we, we find the, this, this type of, of stifling of debate to be something that uh, we, we don't like. I mean, the whole Eugene Debs story is incredible. I, I just find that incredible. But again, it shows that in wartime, just how people can be passionate uh, and that emotion uh, can end up driving uh, action, policy, law, uh, rather than, rather than, uh, again, more deliberation. <laughs> again, we think in the Second World War, how after Pearl Harbor, Japanese-Americans were uh, uh, put together in camps, again, because it was seen that national security was involved at a time when Japan had gone on the offensive in the Pacific. And the United States seemed in great danger. So, yes, looking back with the lens of history, we look at this and we say, "This is this was too much. This was a violation in some way of fundamental civil liberties of Americans, and we don't don't approve of it today." Again, in the context of the time, though, we have to remember how passion, emotion, and fear uh, end up driving uh, uh, people. I think the Deb story, though, is really over the top. And I think, uh, uh, Wilson's attorney general Palmer said that Deb should be pardoned. And again, I put that up that Wilson was like, no, I'm not going to pardon him. Uh, again, you can see passion and emotion, not just among the people, but also among leaders as, as well. I, again, uh, an important question about that balance. What is the balance in, uh, in wartime when we feel threatened? Um, Why did Germany think the war would be over in several uh, uh, weeks? Um, They thought that because they had to think that. Um, You know, this is wish fulfillment. If the war isn't over in a relatively short period of time, they're going to lose. So throughout the war, what you see about German planning—it's it's remarkable. In the beginning of the war, in 1914, uh, again in 1916, 1917, and 1918, the German military planners have this very short time span focus of about six months. They, they can see the future for about six months, but beyond that, it's that's ah, another problem. We'll, we'll address that in six months' time. Uh, you know, Lloyd George saying about the military mind being. Narrow? Well, in the German case, it's certainly the case that they always have a six-month time frame. They're not thinking more long-term. What happens if we fail? You see this in the submarine decision. The German admiral say, we'll win in six months. Well, they don't win within six months. And they have the US now in the war against them. Uh, at the beginning of the war, they think, we'll win in France in about six months in 1914. Well, they don't win in France. They say, what next? Uh, so you have to adapt and change, but their time frame is always six months. Something about the Allied planning that I think is superior, strategic thinking, is that they're thinking more long-range, not just for the next six months, but how about the next year and the year after that? Uh, One way to illustrate this is Churchill was Minister of Munitions in Britain. He is formulating plans for the production of, of weapons, not just for the immediate battle of 1918, but he's making plans for 1919 and 1920 if the war continues that far. And at that time, planners were thinking that the war could go into 1920 on the Allied side. So, uh, again, a more long-range vision, uh, I think, makes for more effective strategic uh, decision-making. And the Germans were very narrowly focused on uh, this six-month time frame, in part because they thought if it goes beyond six months, what do we do then? Um, so that, that, that does drive a lot of what's going on um, I, I, here, here's a question about that uh, the US involvement in the first world war was a blunder uh, uh, and that a lot of the pathologies, uh, the failure of the Weimar Republic in Germany the rise of fascism and the rest that um, uh, uh, were due in in some way to the U.S. involvement in the war. Uh, to this day, you find a number of historians in Britain and the United States who argue not only that the U.S. shouldn't have been in the war, but Britain shouldn't have entered the war, that they should have let the Germans win quickly in 1914, and that a Europe led by Germany, might imperial Germany, might not have been such a bad thing. Uh, that uh, when you weigh it against the losses... That Britain and the U.S. had in life in the war, that it would have been better to avoid the war in the first place. Don't choose to go to war on the part of Britain and the United States. Uh, and uh, th- this, this is a good debate to have uh, because it illustrates uh, uh, for us, it helps us think through, deliberate again on uh, what is the U.S. role in the world, or for that matter at that time Britain in the world, how important are the stakes? What is the value Why should you go to war? And then weigh that against the costs of war. And the costs of war are material, first and foremost, human life. And then secondly, um, uh, economic dislocation, psychological dislocation that comes from uh, war. Societies that come out of a war are generally changed a great deal from the societies that went into war. So uh, a prudent leader is going to recognize how war transforms society. Uh, And not only our own society, but what are we doing to the other side? Are we establishing a peace where the enemy now wants to work with us? Or is it something that there is no solution that proves long-term and enduring? Um, One insight that you get from strategy is... um, when in military history and war, uh, the question is, when does a war end? And the answer is that the enemy gets a vote. The enemy decides when the war is over. Think about that. You know, we think when you go to war, it's like, I'm going to bring this force to bear and that force to bear, and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. But ultimately, all those things you're doing to the enemy, the enemy has to concede. They have to give up. If they don't give up, then you're going to get wars of revenge. And so this question here is, um, what if Germany had been permitted to win, would Europe been more stable? And this is what we call a counterfactual history, uh, that you wouldn't have had a Lenin because the German military would have gotten rid of the Bolshevik regime. You wouldn't have had Hitler come to power. So you don't have Lenin, Stalin, and Hitler. That looks like a much better world (laughs) than the world that we got. Uh, and so that, there's an appeal there and, uh, that behind this question. Uh, the, the flip side of the coin, though, is that a Germany that's triumphant, a military, militarized Germany, a nationalist Germany, led by the Ludendorffs, who were proto-Nazis, that's not a good thing either. So the best thing is that the Germans be defeated uh, in this war, but then you create a more stable peace. And that's going to require a bigger commitment of the U.S., both economically and in security guarantees to prevent that, and also bringing Germany back in, reintegrating it uh, within uh, the international system to where they become a partner, what we like today call a responsible stakeholder, rather than an aggressive a regime that wants to overthrow the international order. So uh, my response is that there's powerful arguments to be made that maybe we should have stayed out, but if we had stayed out, Germany would have won, and I'm not sure that was a good thing uh, uh, as well. Um, How did this First World War experience affect the U.S. Assistant Secretary of the Navy? That's a great question. You know, on Franklin D. Roosevelt. Franklin D. Roosevelt is a remarkable individual, uh, he is a great strategic mind. Uh, I, I find him endlessly fascinating, and we're going to have a program uh, in May. Yeah, good. Uh, on on Roosevelt, he learned a great deal from this war by seeing the battlefields of uh, Europe. He understood the horrific cost of uh, wars fought on the ground. Uh, he wanted as much as possible to prevent. A heavy loss of American life in some future war. He also saw the importance of industrial mobilization, the economics of war, and also how important the Navy is in projecting American power to get to the battlefields of Europe and Asia. You have to have enough secure command of the sea to be able to move forces forward. He thinks globally, too, One of the things that's most remarkable about Franklin D. Roosevelt is he understands how one theater of war relates to another theater of war. While some leaders are focused on one front, he understands how an eastern front relates to a western front, to a battle of the Atlantic, to something going on in the Pacific or the Mediterranean. He's quite good at looking at how all these relate to one another. And, and that's a rare quality because people tend to get very focused. He sees the bigger picture and how they relate. Now, Roosevelt can also be frustrating because he doesn't always uh, convey, he doesn't convey in writing the way Churchill does, uh, what he's thinking. And generally, the last person in the room you know, thinks, oh, I've got the president's ear, I, I know. I- I, and then the next person comes in and he tells them something 180 degrees out. Uh, Ro- Roosevelt liked to say he was the juggler that he could juggle people, he can juggle theaters of war, uh, and he all kept it straight in his own mind, <laughs> which is pretty remarkable when you're telling people different things. Uh, uh, anyway, so he, he's a remarkable strategist that learns a great deal from the First World War, and we're fortunate that he's president in the Second World War because he has been tested in high office in the First World War, just like Winston Churchill had been. The two top leaders in Britain and the United States in the Second World War have held high executive responsibility in the First World War. So they, they come, if you will, with on-the-job training. They have practiced and experienced in, in that. So Roosevelt's a remarkable, Franklin D. Roosevelt's a remarkable strategic thinker. He's also good, too, in understanding the post-war world and thinking beyond the war of what you need to do. And he's very Wilsonian in that regard. He believes that Wilson's attempt to keep the U.S. more engaged in the world was the right way to go. And so what you start to see after the Second World War, things that Wilson wanted to do after the First World War are now being put in place uh, by Roosevelt initially and then by Harry S. Truman. So you see an American security guarantee to Europe, the Atlantic Alliance, and then eventually a military command, NATO. You see the U.S., playing a more forward role to provide for our, our security of our homeland and also to deter aggression. So uh, in Franklin D. Roosevelt, you see somebody who really is a, um, uh, a remarkable strategic thinker. Do I have time for uh, another one? Um, Margaret McMillan. Uh, of Oxford University has written a book called Paris 1919 uh, and I'm asked what is the opinion of uh, Margaret Macmillan's book and its estimate of Wilson's uh, influence I think this is the single best book in recent years on the end of the first world war I highly recommend it it's a big you know door stopper of of a book um, she is let me get this right I might be wrong. She is the great-grandchild of Lloyd George. Is that right? Yes. That's what I got it right? Yeah. She's a remarkable scholar who's written on a wide range of topics. I recommend anything that she has uh, written. And... Uh, she has a really good grasp of the personalities, the people, as well as the big political issues as well. Uh, it, it is such a solid, and, and it's a beautifully written account too. So even though it is a, 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 a big book, it's a book that deserves to be be read. And her, her estimates of all of the leaders, Lloyd George, Clemenceau, Wilson, I think are, are pretty much on the mark on this. One thing you have to remember about Wilson in Paris is that... Um, Wilson was prone to uh, health breakdowns in his life, uh, especially under periods of great stress. Uh, in Paris, he comes down with the flu. He might well have had a, a mild stroke as well. We don't really know. Um, he is negotiating with Clemenceau and Lloyd George. Uh, Clemenceau wants a much more punitive peace against Germany. And in that, Clemenceau is being backed up by Marshall Foch who is saying the Germans will come back, there'll be a war of revenge, so therefore we have to detach the whole Rhineland from Germany uh, so that we have a forward buffer to protect France from a future war of revenge. Um, Wilson and Lloyd George are trying to moderate Clemenceau's French demands. And they do that by saying, we will offer France a security guarantee. If the Germans ever rise up again and attack France, Britain and the U.S. will come to France's aid. Well, when we don't ratify the Versailles uh, Treaty, the result is that that security guarantee goes away, and Britain, too, withdraws its security guarantee to France at this time. I think Wilson was pretty much on the right track. Um, The unfortunate thing about Wilson was that he was not willing to compromise with his opponents in the Senate. Uh, principally with uh, Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts. Um, If Wilson had been more flexible, uh, the treaty would have uh, passed the Senate. He would have been able, you put conditions on the Senate. Some senators had conditions, basically that the United States shouldn't be committed to war without the American people being asked whether they want to take part or not by the Congress authorizing either a declaration of war or, as we do today, some sort of uh, war powers resolution in favor of of action. And that's something that's just common sense, and Wilson should have gone along with it, uh, that he didn't, uh, again, as a sign of of, um, his inability to compromise with political opponents. And you see with the Debs, I mean, he's just gotten so hard over, true believer in whatever you know, his point of view is, that he's not willing to compromise. That's a big mistake. Now, again, one of the great alternative histories, what if we had ratified? What if Wilson had compromised? Would the U.S. actions in the interwar period been different? I'm not sure they would have been. Because I think the American people were turning against the World War I experience and what they saw as being a war that they shouldn't have fought. It was not fought for American security, but it was fought for J.P. Morgan, who had made big loans to Britain. Uh, Again, this whole cynicism that takes hold in the U.S. in the interwar period, I think is, um, is important. And the Great Depression exacerbates, exacerbates those feelings that America had been betrayed by its leaders and taken into a war that should not have been fought. So I'm not sure... Uh, that if you keep everything else the same but change the U.S. signing the Versailles settlement, I, I don't think it would have made much of a, of a difference, actually. H- having said that, every little bit might help, right? Uh, are we out of time, Dale? Oh, I have one more. Okay. One more minute. One more minute. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, just one thing about war memorials, which are very important. Uh, This war uh, uh, today in Europe, you see it, in Britain, Germany, and France, because the heavy loss of life that was suffered in all of these countries, the war is much more immediate in the European consciousness than it is in the American consciousness. As you know, for the United States, we think of one of the great wars, the Civil War, the Second World War, Vietnam. Today, we're engaged in a terror war. so we think of those wars. We tend to blot out from our memory the Great War, the First World War. And so I think, uh, whereas in Europe, it, it's much more in their in their consciousness because of how much all their societies were hurt, wounded by, uh, by the Great War. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, Follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at nyhistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.